Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Um, welcome to an amazing Saturday session, right? Is it Saturday? <laughs> like, seriously, I cannot keep track of the days. Alhamdulillah, I, I just have to say, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah again, that we are actually sitting here. Last night was a horrendous, horrendous night of pain. Um, Sheikh continues to struggle, so I'm always, um, again, completely blown away when Allah allows us to actually gather here and continue with the halakas. It just underscores the importance of what we're doing, and, and um, inshallah, Allah's continued support, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, because we, we receive such incredible knowledge when we're here. And if people understood like how much um, is sacrificed in terms of just putting up with pain um, and struggling and fighting to be here, um, they, I think they would be completely blown away. Um, I thought one of the things that I would share is, um, you know, it was, it's lovely when, um, you know, we have people who can come and, you know, help Sheikh by doing dhikr. Um, and one of the things that I thought was very powerful that we learned, because everything here is a, is a learning opportunity and a learning lesson. So we learn things um, while we're doing other things, not just the halakas. And Sheikh mentioned, you know, a lot of times I think with Muslims doing dhikr, um, you know, they, they will recite and repeat and, you know, and especially as, an, as a non-Arabic speaker, it's hard when I'm doing dhikr because I don't actually understand what I'm saying. Um, and so, you know, it reminds me um, of the halakas when we're learning that, you know, Islam came as a message that helped people get beyond this idea of like, you know, superstition and magical hocus pocus and just kind of like you say the right combination of words and then all of a sudden, you know, the skies open and something appears. So, you know, it's, um, it's what Sheikh told us about dhikr that we learned as we were doing this is the dhikr, um, it's not important so much the words that are being said, but the actual strength of the faith, the iman of the person who's saying it. Um, and that was something that I've never heard in any Muslim space, and I thought that that would be really important for me to share. Um, because a lot of times I've memorized um, surahs, but I, I don't know the meanings of what I'm saying. Um, but I, I certainly, when I'm doing them, you know, I'm praying that, that God will, will help, um, you know, shift through his pain. So it's good to know that it's, it's about the intention and the, the strength of the faith of the person, not necessarily the words. So if that helps. Um, so um, I thought I would just share a couple of, of stories. Um, you know, these halakas really um, transform your life and as I've said in many you know occasions in small and big ways and they should because that's the whole point right because Islam is not about um, what you do on your spare time but it's about how you change the lived reality lived reality of your life um, so everything from something small you know next week school starts um, and so it'll be you know interesting for us to get back to a routine, um, but you know our son Mito is in school um, next week, and we went to an orientation, um, and we were listening to the principal, and he was a very charismatic man, and he was saying, you know, I don't really care so much about people's grades. That's an outcome. What I care about is that people, um, students here, are supported and they feel secure. Um, that they are kind with one another, that they come together with one another, and they do everything to be the best version of themselves. And when I heard best version of themselves, that's what I say all the time, you know, like here in this context. And then he said, you know, um, and you know, we believe here at this school that every individual has a passion and that you know, students have to find out what that passion is and, you know, and use it for good. And I'm like, 
these guys are Muslims, what's going on? <laughs> and you know, it just like was striking to me that this is something that we talk about so much in this space and that, you know, I try to emphasize even with people that are not Muslim, you know, just when I'm trying to convey, you know, like why I find this message is so beautiful is that everyone has a passion, everyone has a purpose. Part of our job as, as Muslims is figuring out what that purpose is and then using it for good. So when I heard him say that, you know, I thought to myself, you know, these people have no idea. They probably think Muslims are like these crazy terrorists, you know, whatever. And, you know, they, they, it's like that idea of shared humanity. If they only knew that that's exactly what we teach our kids, that's exactly what we believe in. You know, if, if this world knew that that is what we share with them, um, you know, and this is a, a, a public space, you know, this is not um, a school that has any particular bias, you know, and, and that diversity, you know, they were really emphasizing the importance of diversity and make, making people feel, you know, accepted for, for who they are. So um, I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, another affirmation for one of the things that we're really working towards is trying to let people, you know, believe that that is actually something that Muslims care about and that they're driven by. Um, so that was very important. Um, and then another lesson that I just, I thought I'd share um, is, you know, I, I, there were several things that reminded me last night of uh, a very um, deep and, and like transformative life experience that I had um, with one of my really close um, friends um, who was struggling with addiction. And it reminded me when I was working this, on this week's um, email on Ma'arij and the lessons that we learned about accountability and time and space and how our relationship oftentimes with sin and um, you know, doing things that you maybe are not sure if you're gonna have to be held account to for them have a lot to do with our understanding of time and space. And Sheikh used a very powerful example, like if someone was standing next to you with a gun to your head, and depending on what action you took at that moment, there would be an, an immediate consequence or an immediate accountability, that that would affect certainly the decision you would make and what you would, what you would do at that given time. Um, and so it was um, a reminder of um, a situation where I, my, my dear friend, um, I went with her to her first narcotics um, anonymous meeting. And, you know, this, it reminded me, I guess, of the lessons that from Maharaj, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, so when we, when we went to this meeting, you know, my, my friend had been struggling for a long time. And, you know, addicts um, are um, in a very interesting um, situation, especially when they show up at a meeting, that they have learned that they have two choices, life or death. Oftentimes people who arrive at one of these meetings um, is when they've decided, okay, you know, if I don't do something to turn my life around, I'm going to be dead. There's no in-between space. And I thought to myself, that is very interesting because that is almost the mindset that we are trying to learn about accountability and about the whole time-space thing. Like, if we lived in a way that we knew everything that we did had an immediate impact on, you know, from a situation even of life and death, that would be utterly transformative to how we make decisions and how we choose to live our life. And it was so striking to me because when I sat down at that meeting with my friend, we looked around and I was so struck. I felt like, you know, these were people that went around the room and they were telling stories about things that they had done. And they were like horrendous stories that you would hear about people who, you know, were doing drugs or alcohol or whatever. Um, and they would go even to hospitals and steal like, you know, medicine from the cabinets. They would get arrested. They, you know, it's like they got to the point where they would do anything just to get 
the next hit. Um, and it was extreme. But they arrived at this meeting and they recognized that showing up at the meeting was their lifeline. It was them reaching out and saying, I, I want to live. I want to be better. Um, and I'm going to try. And those experiences that they went through created an incredible amount of raw honesty. They went around the room, they could talk about themselves um, and admit in front of the group the horrendous things that they did. And it was, you know, a beautiful experience because one, I mean, I felt like I was surrounded by Muslims. None of them were Muslim. But the sheer honesty and the sheer desire um, and, you know, the, the Narcotics Anonymous group, they, they, you know, use sort of a model of like, you know, think about your higher power. You could believe in God, you could believe in, you know, whatever, however you define your higher power. Um, but that there are things that are bigger than you and that you need to, you know, think to your higher power in helping you solve, you know, this addiction problem that you cannot solve yourself. Um, and part of the magic of this whole, like, you know, whether it's Narcotics Anonymous or AA or any of these anonymous groups is that um, you, you have a fellowship of people, you have a community of people that are there to support you um, and not judge you, but help you through your healing. And it's a very powerful model because they have a very detailed, um, like, you know, books. I mean, they've written lots of, of manuals and, and things about how you should handle um, you know, how, what you need to be as a person who can support another person in healing, you know, what your role is and vis-a-vis -vis your higher power, how you are about service. I mean, it's a whole, like, um, methodology that, quite frankly, is extremely Islamic. And it reminded me very much of the, um, the, the training, I guess I, I, I would call it, the, the rebirth that I've talked about in the past that Sheikh took me through when I was trying to reclaim myself and reclaim my morality and reclaim my purpose for living. Um, and so much of it has to do with like looking at yourself, knowing who you are, um, confronting the really difficult parts about your personality, what you're capable of, um, so that you truly know yourself. And you know, here obviously in, in we've talked about how in the Islamic um, tradition, the first path, you know, the first step to knowing your God is knowing yourself. Um, and then the process of, you know, confronting all the, the sins you've committed and the things that you've done to hurt people and then even making amends um, so that you can reclaim yourself and, and know yourself and heal and move on. Um, so, you know, my, my friend did a lot of, of really hard work and I, you know, met her once um, when she was in rehab. And I, as part of my support for her, I attended um, a, a meeting um, which is called Al-Anon. It's for families and friends of people who are addicts. And interestingly, um, it was, you know, sitting down with a lot of people who were struggling with people that they loved who were addicts. And I sat next to this rabbi and he was, you know, he had a, a little yarmulke, I guess it's called, the hat. And he was um, the head of a synagogue in New York. Um, we had to go around, we had to introduce ourselves, and I said, you know, and obviously I don't look Muslim, so I, you know, but I said, I'm a religious person, and I'm here to support my friends. And so he came up to me, this is like one of the most interesting stories, because, you know, addiction and pain and, um, you know, and suffering obviously cuts across religious, you know, um, financial, you know, eth ethnic lines. I mean, if there's, there's no, you know, it's like, Everyone could be an addict, right? There's, there's, no, um, there's no discrimination. 
So we went around the room and, you know, and then later when we went to lunch, we were walking. His daughter was an addict in the program and he came up to me and he said, you're religious. Um, I, I, what do you do? Like sometimes I feel so like lost and so hopeless and so desperate that, you know, I, I despair. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you're the rabbi, of the head of a synagogue, and you're asking me, you know, and, and I said, well, have you increased your prayers? And he said, no, I have to admit, I've stopped praying. And sometimes I even wish that my, my daughter, he's like, I hate to admit this, but sometimes I wish my daughter would just die because it would make things easier because she, it's like she's dead already. Um, and I said, no, 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 you, you, you have to increase your prayers. These, these are tests. These are times when you actually need to turn to God and, you know, and ask for help. You have to increase your worship. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, he's a lot older than me. And again, he's a rabbi, you know, and I'm like, you know, myself, okay, I, you know, I'm just this person sitting here, like, you know, telling a rabbi what he should do with his daughter. It was like so mind twisting. But, um, you know, I, it was just a really like, you know, one of these experiences where it just makes you think, you know, like when as a Muslim, you know, we are, we are here to, you know, help people who are, um, oppressed people you know we've talked about you know helping people you know empowering people who are disempowered and who could be more disempowered than someone who is under the you know influence of addiction or um, suffering you know in any way shape or form and it just reminded me you know again about Surah Abisa you know the idea of being not just good but but beautifully good and you know like the power of reaching out to someone who is struggling you know a lot of times addicts they don't think they're ill they they don't see things in a in a rational way they see things through um a very um you know biased viewpoint they oftentimes are suffering from trauma they're suffering from you know different experiences that have shaped you know the way they understand the world um and they live in a lot of fear and anxiety um and, you know, it, it's, it's a lesson to, you know, how you, even in helping someone who, you know, is dealing with the suffering of, of addiction, can be kind and good. Um, not that, not because, you know, I mean, that person is up to them to turn their life around and make the right decisions and it's between them and God where they end up. But your role can be one of, of just love and support and non-judgmental love and support. Um, and, you know, and you leave the rest to God, but you'd be a good example of a Muslim who cares. Um, and, you know, these meetings, as I said, were a lifeline. And oftentimes, you know, I, like my friend, we were just so desperate, um, you know, that my friend would just show up to a meeting. Because as long as she would show up to a meeting, it meant that there was still a chance that she could turn herself around. The minute she decided not to go to a meeting again, it would be like, okay, what else can we do? But as long as, and I would try to encourage her all the time to go to meetings, and every time that she would show up to a meeting, I would be, you know, so excited and so happy and just try to encourage her. Um, and so, you know, I just, again, like everything you, you think about that you experience, you bring back to the Islamic, you know, and, and you go, what is it that God wants us to do? Um, and, and this was a really powerful, sort of very interesting, unexpected place where I found, you know, Muslims and Islam. Um, and learned something else about my faith through a completely different lens. 
Um, so I just, I thought I would share that. And I wanted to talk about this because Muslim spaces do not often talk about things like addiction. And this is one of these things that we have to be, you know, at the forefront of doing because that's what we're here for. We're here to serve people. We're here to help people. We're here to uplift people and be good examples. Um, and, you know, and Muslims should be, you know, at the forefront, not at the tail end, which is where they are right now. So um, I just wanted to share that story for whoever you know might need to hear it and um, encourage anyone who is either struggling with addiction or has a family member or a loved one or a dear friend um, that there's no shame and that you should get help and that our job as Muslims is to encourage that um, and to be as loving and supportive as possible and non-judgmental as possible. So that is it. And I. I'm so excited. This is an incredible surah today. Um, again, you know, when I see like how much pain and sacrifice that the sheikh has to go to, uh, go through to arrive here to deliver this learning to us, then I know it's you know what we're going to get is in direct portion to, in, in direct proportion, to the suffering that he has had to endure. So, um, knowing how horrible last night was, inshallah, um, I, I'm, I'm guessing it'll be an incredible surah. So. Thank you, and may Allah bless you. Uh, I mean, honestly, I, you guys don't even know. It just you have to pray for Shem, and and it's it's you know, Herculean is not even the word. It's it's like what he goes through is saintly. So and for our benefit, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> والصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم يا ربي علي عظيم اللهم لا تكلفنا إلا بصحنا ولا تؤاخذنا إن نسينا وأخطأنا ولا تحمل علينا إسرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به يا رب واعف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا قوم الكافرين وهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي بسم الله so you all recall that we said in the past that Surah Hud was revealed right after Surah Yunus. And Surah Yunus took us on an educational journey, the journey of moral conditioning and ethical conditioning that reaches its penultimate conclusion with the Prophet Yunus of an example of a saved people rather than an example of a destroyed people. And the saved people are saved 
not simply because their prophet intervened on their behalf or anything like that, but they are saved because of their own moral initiative. They took, they made the moral decision and based on that moral decision, moral action, and what this moral action translated into is addressing injustices and restoring justice in society. And although the Surat Yunus warns us that this is indeed rare because human beings often fail to do so, but it leaves us with this awareness that there is the whole point of existence is to engage in the moral challenge and to rise to the moral challenge if you exist aimlessly, pointlessly, if you exist only to augment your privileges and, your, and fulfill your desires, then as Surat Yunus underscores, this is often an ailment of, of, of what I've described as agnostics, but you know, a, a, a flimsy belief. And a belief that at its core, at its core, doesn't know how to handle the all of life it has the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the painful and the pleasurable, and at its core, that lightweight belief, that, that flimsy belief, doesn't know how to negotiate between good and bad. As Surat Yunus shows us or speaks, it, it reminds us repeatedly that there are those who, when things are going their way, they indulge and they are full of hubris and full of pride and full of entitlement. And when things crumble, instead of thinking about what have we done wrong? How can we address the injustices, the infractions that led us to this situation? In other words, instead of thinking in concrete terms, how can we restore rights? They panic and they blame everything but their own actions.
And then so Surat Yunus left us with this important moral message that if you, as I'm sure you remember, we said is occurring um, after the Isra and with the beginning in the, of the escalation and persecution against Muslims. Then Surat Hud comes to add something very profound and there is ample evidence that again, the earliest generation of Muslims understood precisely what Surat Hud was doing. But unfortunately, we find that there are also many generations of Muslims while they benefited from bits and pieces of Surat Hud, but for many different reasons, they forgot the totality, the comprehensive message of Surat Hud. A lot of people learn and you find in, in the books of tradition that there, there are all these reports that say that among the sore of the Quran that was most demanding, even most burdensome upon the Prophet and, and by the way, when you read in medieval narratives, things like that, most burdensome upon the Prophet, you immediately know that the narrative puts the Prophet in the, at the center point. But when something says most burdensome upon the Prophet, then immediately you know through the mechanics of medieval narrative that it was not just the Prophet but the Prophet and the community around the Prophet. That among them, the sword that was most burdensome upon the Prophet and the early Muslims was indeed Surat Yunus. And of course, typical of medieval narratives, medieval narrative will often uh, dramatize the, the, the story. Uh, and if you understand the drama, then you understand what they're saying. But the, there's a, a certain um, structural drama in, in medieval narratives. So they'll often pinpoint a single ayah in Surah Hud and say that the, this is because of the ayah that says, Astaqim kama umirt. Astaqim kama umirt literally would be um, follow the beast straight forward or f follow faithfully what you have been told to do. And some narratives, and there are many of them, that even say that, the, the, that this single ayah in Surah Hud 
was the reason that the prophet's hair became white. His beard whited, became white, and people asked him, what happened? Why did your hair suddenly become all white? And he said it's because of Surah Hud and the ayah Stakim Kama Umirat. Now, of course, if you know the nature of medieval narrative, you you will know that that that's all metaphorical because Stakim Kama Umirat by itself as an ayah, for an ayah to say, uh, you know, comply with what you've been told to do is not going to make anyone's hair grow white. And it is not unique in the Quran, but it has become the symbolic hanger upon which to express the challenge that Surat Hud posed to Muslims. You just, this is the way, every period, every people have a way of saying things. You know, uh, it's like when, uh, when sometimes I talk to my 16 year old son and he'll say something like, oh, this is sick. And of course he means why it's good, right? And if you, if you didn't understand that every pe every people and every culture and every period have a way of saying things, you would get the wrong message completely. Or, you know, often when he wants to praise me, he'll say, you know, Baba, you're really bad. Uh, you know, and that means exactly, it means it is praise, right? So, forms of narrative, Unfortunately, they don't teach forms of narrative in hadith schools or in fiqh schools, and they 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 uh, and because of that, we are deeply alienated from our tradition because we really don't study the mechanics of. Um, uh, The, the, the mechanics of language. And by the way, and, and ways of, of speaking the Arabic language differed from the first century to the second century to the sixth century to the eighth century. So it's not like you're gonna learn one thing and you're gonna apply it to all the Islamic centuries. And they also differ geographically. So the way the people of Iraq spoke was different than the way the people of Yemen spoke and which yet differed from the way the people of Egypt spoke, which yet differed from the way people of Andalusia spoke, and, and so on, and it, and it goes on like that. So that is why, that is why education is very serious, and knowledge is very serious, and learning is very serious. And that is why, as Muslims, we were defeated when our educational institutions were destroyed. Educational institutions, and I've said that a million times, and I will say it till the day Allah takes my life. 
educational institutions are not about just opening up places that can read hadith and read Quran. That's, that educational institutions are about bringing in eminently competent teachers that understand what the field of epistemology is. Anyway, I don't want to take us too far, but... So my point is that when we have all these traditions that claim that Surat Qud uh, aged the Prophet or that the companions, the, the, such and such companion dreamt, had a dream that uh, about Surat Hud and he woke up and found that he had aged and his hair had become all white. Um, or we read narratives about uh, how uh, such and such companion says of all the Quran, this ayah in Surat Hud it became the, the my tormentor, and it's the ayah that after the revelation of this ayah, I failed to sleep, have a single night of good sleep. All of this is communicating the importance of Surat Hud. All of this is alerting us to the mechanics of Surat Hud, especially when it was revealed in the first generations. And of course, there it begs the question, what is Surat Hud doing? And what did it do particularly after Surat Yunus? And these are precisely the methodological questions <clears throat> that I asked as I am, as I embarked upon investigating Surat Hud and trying to understand Surat Hud as a coherent, holistic discourse. And as you will see, in fact, Surat Hud, very much, it, it's, you cannot understand the middle without considering the entirety, or the end of the Surah without considering the entirety, or the beginning of the Surah without considering the entirety. Surat Hud, like in my opinion, all the Surah of the Quran must be understood as a totality. So if we know that it starts out with the Alif Lam Ra, and we know, as we said before, that the that I've noticed that Surah that start with Alif Lam Ra have a certain ethical core or are the suwar that express a certain ethical core, um, not necessarily about Islamic theology, but about Islamic applied ethics. So it starts out with Alif Lam Ra, and Surat Hud itself alerts us to the critical role or to its own uh, narrative significance 
in saying kitabun uhkimat ayatuhu thumma fussilat min ladun hakimin khabir. So this is a precise book and fussilat min ladun hakimin khabir nothing in this book is there just happenstance or it is like saying to you everything every sentence or everything in this book matters so pay careful attention okay alla ta'budu illa allah innani lakum minhu nadhirun bashir this is verse 2 First, a priori to anything that will come after it is the centrality of Allah. That you worship Allah and you understand the role of the Prophet as a nazir, a warner, and bashir. And we've talked about this before, the, the role and we've encountered that also in Surah Yunus, as we encounter it many, many other parts in the Quran, that in Islam, these dualities of a warner and a bringer of good news. And we've thought, if you recall what I've said about how Christianity, the, 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 or in religious traditions, the flip-flopping between either an undue influence on the Nazir part or an undue emphasis on the Bashir part, but like everything in Islam, it is always the equilibrium, the balance. Okay. وَأَنِ اسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ ثُمَّ تُوبُوا إِلَيْهِ يُمَتَّعُكُمْ مَتَاعًا حَسَنًا إِلَىٰ أَجَلٍ مُسَمَّى وَيُؤْتِي كُلَّ ذِي فَضْلٍ فَضْلَهُ وَإِنْ تَوَلَّوْا فَإِنِّي أَخَافُ عَلَيْكُمْ عَذَابَ يَوْمٍ كَبِيرٍ إِلَى اللَّهِ مَرْجِعُكُمْ وَهُوَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ So, the very beginning, again, sort of gradually but gently takes us into what will become core to the message. Literally, it's saying something that it's very easy to get accustomed to and used to and, 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 and fail to notice the way that Allah is talking to you. Seek forgiveness from your Lord. Turn to your Lord in repentance. Okay? But, يُمَتُّعْكُمْ مَتَاعًا حَسَنًا إِلَىٰ أَجَلٍ مُسَمَّةٍ So here, if you seek forgiveness, and you repent, God will 
bless you in a meta hasan, in a goodly reward. You will you will have meta hasan even is like a, a beautiful reward. Ila ajalin musamma to an appointed time. So you pause here and say, wait. Allah is not talking about the hereafter here. Because what happens when Allah talks about the hereafter? Does Allah say, I will reward you for an appointed time? Or does Allah say, I will award you for abad, for arguably eternity? So the first thing you notice is that here the discourse is taking you and even perhaps subtly and subconsciously to something other than what happens in the hereafter. Allah is saying your relationship with me can have concrete concrete results on this earth in terms of the moral quality of your life the beautific nature of your life this is only underscored with the fadlin fadla. Now, if you do this, what you get is that someone who is the fadl is a person of merit will re receive due recognition for their merit. So we pause here and we think again and say, okay, every person who has merit receives due recognition for their merit in the hereafter. Okay, that, that's understood. But what if it happens in the here now? Isn't that the core and heart of what we call a just society? All the philosophies in the world, when they talk about a just society, the heart and soul of their philosophy is what? Is a society that actually treats people according to their merit. So that the lousy don't get what they don't deserve and the beautiful are not shortchanged as to what do they deserve. And if they turn away Then at that point, 
say, well, in addition to this, and you'll see how all of this relates to the rest of the surah. People, the, the Quran is profound. You know, I, I've, my, my uh, you know, my, my wife and my students say, someday people will, will understand what you are talking about, but it, 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 it saddens me that the things that I talk about in the Quran are not common knowledge. And that just the vast, vast majority of Muslims have no clue about. Because it's all there. Because you'll see how all of this connects to the entire surah. So you are gently pulled in in telling you your relationship to Allah can actually translate into a lived reality in which goodness is recognized and justice is upheld and in fact the very core of a just society can be anchored in that very simple principle. Every person of merit would receive their due merit. It becomes an ethical principle. And if they turn away, then it's like saying, if you turn away from, if I tell you, you know, the essence of a just society is that every person of merit receives their due, and you say, I don't even understand that, and as we will see. Just remember this, because we'll come back to it. If your response to this is, what? Why is this important? How is that a principle? Then my response to you, there's no point that, to try to explain to you the philosophical point. You're so behind, you're so backwards, that the only thing I can say is, you know what, fear God's punishment in the hereafter. See, the, the remarkable stratagem of the Quran is like, okay, fine, you know, you can't talk principles, let's talk, you know, just basic hard knock facts. Okay, you know, if, if, you, if you don't, if you can't seek out elevated principles, then at least fear God. Fear torture at the end. Now, if you read the Quran carefully enough and you say, oh, hmm, so how does that relate to what the to, to what the Prophet is going through, and immediately the Quran comes and says, Allah 
immediately the Quran gives you a very vivid picture of the type of people that the Prophet is talking to. Not the Muslims, but the type of people he's trying to preach Islam to. They're exactly the type of people who don't understand the principle of giving every person who deserves merit their due. And in fact, the picture is very vivid. When the Prophet ﷺ goes and tries to reach them, what do they do? They First, is like they hide, it's, it's figurative, it's like they hide their chest, their chest, so that they hear nothing. So it's like, um, is when you go like this, to hide from someone. So, you, so because they, they're, they're trying to avoid even hearing anything. And even more, uh, even more abysmal is that they, they hide under their garments. So they're like children. They, they, they put their garments up and hide under them so that they hear nothing. So it is a very vivid picture of how the lack of moral development of these people. But yet that's not going to prevent the Quran from delivering the message to those who need to hear the message, i.e. the Muslims who at this stage have remained Muslim after the Isra and remain Muslim after Surat Yunus. But it is clearly communicating to you who the Prophet is dealing with. And in my rather colorful language, he's dealing with morons who hide from him and are even not willing to consider a moral principle that would be at the core, at core and heart of justice. Then Allah starts building towards the moral message that will be communicated. And first and foremost is that you must understand that there is no happenstance, there is no mere coincidence, there is no aimlessness in creation. And how is that communicated? Is that there is nothing on this earth that is outside Allah's knowledge. Everything that transpires and takes place from the smallest to the biggest is encompassed by God's knowledge. This is verse 6. And as the Quran often does, 
takes you to the image of the beginning, sort of like reminding you of of the the rational the the rational of faith that there were six distinct periods, as we said before, not ayam I mean six not six days but periods or, or eons. You could translate it as either, but I wouldn't translate it as days because that's not the intended meaning. And that the seat of creation, which I'm sure here is translated as uh, his throne was on the water, because that's how people always translate it. Uh, one day, cover themselves with three hands. And yeah, his throne was upon the water. Yeah, the throne upon the water is, is again, is, you have to look, you have to study idiomatic usage. The seat of creation was, meaning the beginning of creation was from water. It's not that God sat on some type of throne on the water, but the genesis of creation was begun from water. And that that's where life emerged. And that Allah again reminds you of the core, that life then emerged so that you have a choice between good and bad, and you have the volition to exercise a choice between good deeds and bad deeds. And that ultimately you confront accountability. This takes us to verse 8. And then it comes to something that is core to human psychology. Not for the first time, but in the context of Surah Hud. Because as I told you before, Yunus, Hud, and Yusuf are so that deal with the human psychology that human beings although they intuitively recognize that the elevated believe in principles but they suffer from an inherent contradiction and that is they quickly lose faith in principles if they don't see empirical results unfold before their eyes. You might say, well, how do you get that? And I say, look at verse 8. The first challenge that 
the Prophet and other Prophets confront is people tell the Prophets, well, if there is really accountability, if there is really consequences, then have it unfold. Bring it on. The very ability to believe in a principle that you abide by is to believe something is right and something else is wrong and so you abide by what is right believing that this because you believe it's right and whether you see the consequences of the uh, unfold or not unfold doesn't affect your commitment to the principle so imagine if you say as a principle i believe in god but I believe in God as long as I see the evil suffer in 20 years. And if I don't see the evil suffer in 20 years, I no longer believe in God. Have you actually believed in God? Or if you say, I believe that I should not kill another human being. But... This belief is premised on the conviction that those who kill should be punished. And if I see someone kill and they're not punished, I will no longer believe in the sanctity of human life. Then what is the nature of your conviction? Or if you say, I believe that you shouldn't lie. However, if I find that someone has actually lied and benefited from their lies and was not held accountable for lying, I will lose my conviction in speaking the truth and I will indeed lie. This is precisely the same. They are people that are saying, well, we could believe, but when is it going to happen? And if you can't tell us when it's going it's to happen, and if we don't get to see it, this is a, an ailment that will prevent the construction of what Surah Hud speaks about for the balance of the surah, as we will see. That same type of flighty or flimsy psychology, the flawed morality psychology, is intimately connected to something that we've dealt with in Surah Yunus, but here is from a slightly different angle. Again, Allah comes back and says, people, 
pay attention to an incessant and persistent problem is that when I give you when I bestow blessings upon you you not just enjoy the blessings but you start believing that you're entitled to what you receive and beyond that you start believing that somehow this is a definition of your merit now remember those who believe in God and as a result they are able to live in a society in which those who have merit get their due but here it is an ailment is that merit is defined by not truth, not justice, not mercy, not compassion, not any of the things that we will talk about in Surah Hud, but merit is defined by whether you were born in the right family, whether you came up with an idea for a gadget that won you a lot of money, whether you manage to get the right people to work for you who come up came up with an idea that hit it big in the market and you know you manage to sell your company to or to cash in it, it merit as and you start assuming that well the material wealth is in fact a measurement and barometer for the, the, my merit as a human being now of course we are not talking about kuffar here we're talking about muslims because these are ailments that plague, plague societies whether they're muslim or not and I don't need to tell you, I mean, you, you turn around and you, you see this all the time. You, you deal with rich people who, and just because they're wealthy, they walk around like peacocks. I mean, and they talk to people as if, you know, they, but at the same time, that when Allah starts taking away from you, The sense of despair that human beings feel has nothing to do with rational accountability. It is not like the people of Yunus who thought, well, let you know what injustices have we committed? Let's restore the injustices, let's address the injustices, let's make reparations. But no, here. The, the consistent problem, and when we say consistent problem, means the majority of human beings, is that when they are plagued by misfortune, they immediately jump to the type of existential questions that they avoided thinking about when things were going their way. 
when they were, you know, when things were going their way, they were not asking questions like, well, you know, what is the nature of justice? They weren't asking things about, you know, how should wealth be shared? They weren't asking questions like, well, do I really, as, you know, a doctor who puts in X amount of hours, do I really deserve the money that I'm paid? I charge my patient $300 for 10 minutes, you know, do I, is this charge justified? They don't ask these questions. Or, you know, an attorney who, I don't know, works on some BS lawsuit, gets a settlement for half a million dollars, you know, doesn't say, you know, was it, do I really believe that the settlement was justified? No, they don't ask these type of questions. But when things go wrong, immediately the existential questions come, come in. Oh, why do people suffer? I am so disturbed by the nature of suffering. Why am I, what have I done to deserve all of this? You know, these types of, but it's not, they're not serious questions. And, and bringing you back, why does Allah raise this issue? As we will see, because it is an impediment and a serious obstacle to the type of social ethics that Surah Hood is, is educating Muslims to construct. Of course, but in verse, this is verses 9, 10, 11, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds you that those who learn the meaning of patience and those who uh, acclimate themselves on doing good and good deeds, that these are not what God is talking about. God is talking about the majority of human beings who in fact deal with the question of worth and deserve and merit precisely as the Quran describes it. Okay. So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes us back to the Prophet and says something to the Prophet that is very honest but very painful. And it 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 gives you a sense of of how remarkably um, uh, what is the working word? How remarkably uh, traumatic the treatment that the Prophet was receiving from his people. How remarkably traumatic it was for him. فَلَعَلَّكَ تَارِكٌ بَعْضَ مَا يُوحَى إِلَيْكَ وَضَائِقٌ بِهِ صَدْرُكَ أَنْ يَقُولُوا لَوْ لَا أُنْزِلَ عَلَيْهِ كَنْزٌ أَوْ جَاءَ مَعْهُ مَلَكٌ 
انما انت نذير والله على كل شيء قدير ام يقولون افتراه كل فاتوا بعشر سور مثله مفتريات وادعوا من استطعتم من دون الله ان كنتم صادقين فان لم يستجيبوا لكم فاعلموا انما انزل بعلم الله وان لا اله الا الله وان لا اله الا هو فهل انتم مسلمون so as the persecution is escalating the prophet ali sallallahu is sort of thrown a little bone of temptation if only the quran if only your quran would stop attacking our idols and our way of life in it, we, it's not we have it's not that we have a problem that you disagree with us but we have a problem with your language you know how often do you hear that right we we have a problem with how sharp so if only your Quran would be a little bit softer when it when it criticizes our way of life then maybe things would be different and Allah recognizes that the Prophet as a human being in certain moments of intense agony knows when the Quran is revealed and is saying something very confrontational the prophet knows oh boy there is going to be hell to pay because and allah comes back to the prophet and says yeah we, we allah knows that but also know that none of this is happenstance this is the way allah intends it and you must deliver the message precisely as it is given to you and then this which in surah yunus and repeated again in surah hud the challenge to the those who are saying this well this just comes from muhammad in saying well go ahead to do something like it but to produce something like it, although if you read so many of the people who wrote about Ajaz al-Quran, they always emphasize on the language, the emphasis is on the language and the grammar. I think when the Quran says produce something like it, it's not just the language and the grammar, but it is the philosophical integrity of the text. Because the this text is philosophically far more mature than anything that existed in the near east at the time by leaps and bounds and we'll see examples of this what i've termed sort of perhaps a psychological blocks building blocks so to know that nothing occurs outside of god's knowledge and god's will second 
that you must be the type of human being that can commit to a principle. If you have a problem committing to a principle, then we have a problem. Third, that you must be the type of human being that doesn't go from far left to far right depending on whether things are going your way or not going your way. If you have a good day, you are such a wonderful, sweet human being. If you have a bad day, you're lousy and nasty and you snap at everyone. That's not going to work. That type of human being is not the one who is going to build the Islamic civilization. It's not just you're not moody. But you understand when things are going your way to know that there is a very good chance you don't deserve all that you're getting. And when things are not going your way, you understand that there is a very good chance that you are earning precisely what you deserve. That takes a reflective, critical human being. I'm failing because I deserve it. But when I succeed, well, maybe I don't deserve all the success. And, and just because, and here this is the, the, the why Allah tells the Prophet, yeah, I know that you you, you 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 feel sometimes like you're going to suffocate because of the honesty of the Quran. Well, those who follow you, because remember, it is not just the Prophet who is teaching the Quran; it's the followers of the Prophet. So. Do you think the followers of the Prophet get it any easier because they're a follower of the Prophet? They don't. When they go tell people what the Quran says and the type of mistreatment Muhammad will get, well, they'll get the same mistreatment and perhaps even worse, like Bilal, or like Salman and Faris. So in other words, you are the type of person who if charged with the responsibility of telling the truth, you will say it. How, think of how many times the Quran tells you that Allah requires that you testify as to the truth, even if it's against, against yourself. Delivering the truth of the Quran is what? It's a testimony. So if you are cowardly, we have a problem. So now it comes to something that this is the first time that occurs it was in Surah Qud, although it's repeated again later in the Quran. But the idea that Allah says, you know, 
if life on this earth is your sole purpose, then Allah will reward you for whatever good you do on this earth, in this earth. If this is all you care about, this is verse 16. But the problem is, then you're, you're, you've been paid in full. And there's nothing for you in the hereafter. Okay. Now we come to 17, where it's going to turn serious. Well, it's all serious, but going to turn into even heavier. such a remarkable ayah. This is the first the study Quran translates it as, as so. So what of the one who stands upon a clear proof from his Lord and for whom it is recited by a witness from him? And before it, it there was the book of Moses, a guide and mercy. It is they who believe in it and whosoever believe, disbelieves in it from among the parties, the fire is their trist. So be not in doubt concerning it. Verily it is the truth from thy Lord, but most of mankind believe not. Okay. Um, as you can see from the study of Quran, I mean, it's hard to understand what it's saying. But if a man can So it's not saying so that of the one who stands up upon whatever. If a man can it is not specifying anyone, but it is like saying ponder those who have a bayina from Allah from their God. And Ibayina literally is any form of proof. And so the question is what is meant by someone who has proof from the Lord? And, of course, some commentators said, well, the, the proof here is someone who received the revelation, but for many different reasons, that doesn't make much sense. But rather, it doesn't make much sense because later on, the Quran will talk about the Quranic revelation 
or in Surah Hud. But it is talking about sort of the elements, the basic elements of belief, incorporating the revelation given to Musa. So, أَفَمَنْ كَانَ عَلَى بَيِّنَةٍ مِنْ رَبِّهِ A substantial number of scholars said that it is saying, consider those who proof of their Lord was what they call al-dalil al-aqli is the rational evidence. In other words, they use their reason to use the reason to understand the existence of the Lord. And pause. And in addition to that rational proof of the Lord is the revelation received. And what is the revelation received? And most say it's the Quran here. So first, you've used your reason to anchor your faith in the necessity of the existence of God, then bolstered that faith with the revelation of the Quran. Quran is the way they say that then what comes after the rational proof is the Quranic revelation that bolsters that. Then it says, وَمِنْ قَبْلِهِ كِتَابُ مُوسَى إِمَامَ But before the Quran, not before the rational proof, but before the Quran was the revelation given to Musa. And the revelation given to Musa was a guide and a mercy. In a single ayah, it wonderfully unpacked for you the essence of true Islamic belief is that you've, you've used a Quranic kawni, the created Quran, to understand what Allah, the presence of Allah, the, the necessity of Allah, the supremacy of Allah, then refined that, that rational proof with the Quranic revelation and understand that earlier revelations have elements, the most important, the, the uncorrupted elements of earlier revelations are those elements of ethics or, and morality. The Mosaic law that prohibits what ought to be prohibited on moral grounds. And then, then beyond that it says, but as to those various parties who have gone, and here Ahzab doesn't refer to the Ahzab that existed in Medina, the, the political parties, 
it refers to the various parties that rejected either rational proofs or rejected the revelation of Moses or rejected the revelation of the Quran. Uh, their fate is known, but the critical thing is that وَلَا تَكُنْ فِي مِرْيَةٍ مِنْهُ إِنَّهُ الْحَقُّ مِنْ رَبِّكَ so, Get rid of doubt because reason plus revelation is what will anchor you in faith. Um, there's a lot written about this. So, for instance, um, a lot written around this particular verse about about how Sharia and reason complement one, one another and must complement one another. And even in Sufi literature, not just in you know, Ibn Rushd or, or, but even in Ghazali, the idea that Sharia and Aqr, it is imperative that the two aid and bolster one another. The idea of an irrational Sharia was only sustained, or the, or having Sharia not care about reason or or rationality, was really only defended by Ahlul Hadith in the Islamic tradition, which was Ahlul Hadith or the Akhbaris in the Shia tradition which was a minority until the modern age. The modern age, that, the, until the modern age, that idea that Sharia need not care about what makes sense or what's rational or what's reasonable is, and if you're interested in this, read my book, Reasoning with God, which, where I talk um, you know, a great detail about this. This is, the other thing is, you know, the Islamic tradition is replete with um, is replete with, with, with narratives about how faith must be anchored in reason. And uh, if faith is not anchored in reason, then faith is on very flimsy grounds. Even the Sufis who say, you know, use things like um, kashf or dhawq or, but still for them, it's a, it's a type of reason. It's a, it's a type of reason that is based on intuitive knowledge, not a rejection of reason. Because of that, what a lot of Muslims don't know is that the companions of the Prophet used to ask him questions that we modern Muslims treat our children 
as if they are, something is wrong with them if they, if they ask the same questions. So there are traditions in which the companions or some companions ask the Prophet what existed before God. Now, I'm, now the responses that the Prophet reportedly give, there are many different narrations and I don't trust the authenticity of uh, these narrations, so I'm not. I'm, I'm, I don't want to go into them. But we have many reports of people going to the prophet and saying, "Well, we're wondering what was before God. Well, why did God create things? Well." what was the state of reality before God? And in none of these narrations do we have the prophet reprimand them or get angry at them or, you know, the only question is whether the answer that is reported on behalf of the prophet is an authentic answer or not. Okay. Okay, so وَمَنْ أَظْلَمُ مِمَّنْ افْتَرَى عَلَى اللَّهِ كَذِبًا أُولَئِكَ يُعْرَضُونَ عَلَى رَبِّهِمْ وَيَقُولُ الْأَشْهَادُ هَا أُولَاءَ الَّذِينَ كَذَبُوا عَلَى رَبِّهِمْ أَلَا لَعْنَةُ اللَّهِ عَلَى الظَّالِمِينَ الَّذِينَ يَصُدُّونَ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَيَبْغُونَهَا عِوَجًا I'm reading here 18 and 19. وهم بالآخرة هم كافرون أولئك لم يكونوا معجزين في الأرض وما كان لهم من دون الله من أولياء يضعف لهم العذاب ما كانوا يستطيعون السمع وما كانوا يبصرون أولئك الذين خسروا أنفسهم وضل عنهم ما كانوا يفترون لا جرم أنهم في الآخرة هم الأخسرون إن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات الصالحات وأخبتوا إلى ربهم أولئك أصحاب الجنة هم فيها خالدون مثل الفريقين كالآمى والأصم والبصير والسميع هل يستويان مثل أفلا تذكروا okay so this from 18 to 24 is the transition to the beginning of the narratives about the prophets And the first 18 communicates a basic but an important idea that in the building, building blocks of Iman, we've already spoken about several of them. And after understanding something about the, the, the importance of conscientious, rational Iman, aided by revelation. Another principle is added to this, that it is no Iman, no Iman that can be called Iman, involves lying about God. And you might think, well, well, you know, this is talking about someone who claims to be a prophet. No, 
It's not just someone who claims to be a prophet. Anytime you say, I know what God wants, and you are not basing yourself on a rationally considered position that is that has vetted out the evidence upon the, about the divine will, you are lying about God. So anyone who pretends to be an imam speaking about what God wants or God doesn't want, but speaks out of ignorance. Anyone that says, I received visions, or I received dreams, or, you know, pretends to be what they are not attributing what they are to God, which is actually a lot of people. Those people, first, in the year after, will be exposed. But, is a horrible thing. When Allah says, my curse will be upon them because they are zalimeen. That's a terrifying thing. I wish because every time a Muslim jumps on social media and starts spewing about Islam this and Islam that, they fall under that category. You can express whatever opinion that is yours, but be very careful about saying, this is what God wants or God decides or what God doesn't want or what God doesn't decide because you know I've seen a lot of, like I've seen some events that have uh, preoccupied the Muslim community including things like the Tariq Ramadan issue um, uh, what's the name of the other guy that was in Texas Nomad Khan or whatever um, what was his name Norman Ali Khan. And people were pontificating about what Sharia says and Sharia doesn't say. And when you read what, you wrote, what they wrote, it is very clear that their training is abysmal. I mean, they just are shooting from the hip. You know, opening a few books, reading a few passages, and spewing out stuff. Um, that's disastrous. The responsibility in the year after is, is disastrous. Then, add to this, الَّذِينَ يَصُدُّونَ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَيَبْغُونَهَا عِوَجًا وَهُمْ بِالْآخِرَةِ هُمْ كَافِرُونَ So, but ultimately, then there is a further thing, those who become committed to an immoral way of life. As-sadda an sabi'lillah, 
it's not just those who say, I am a kafir and I don't want you to be a believer. But it is anyone that says, I am committed, and, I will, and you'll see this because Surah Hud will come back to this issue. If anyone that says, I am committed to an immoral way of life because of whatever functional necessity they, they imagine. So, you know, fighting off people who want in a nation uh, where perhaps bribery is widespread and you find a reformer that wants to stop being an end to bribery and a lot of people who imagine themselves good Muslims will in fact fight this reformer and destroy the reformer and create some type of justification as to why life should continue with bribery, life should continue with injustice Life should continue with corruption. Life should continue with tyranny. Life, I mean, look at the number of Muslims in Muslim countries that end up justifying injustice and despotism and tyranny and effectively argue that this is, a, this is the only way of life that, that we can have. Those and they seek a crooked way of life. If you say this includes, yes, it does include, if you say, well, you know, like in, in Egypt, Grace once went into a swimming pool wearing clothes, like, uh, like you know, the, the, these... Um, uh, and they told her, no, you can't swim in, in, in Egypt with your clothes on. Uh, in Egypt, if you swim, you have to swim wearing a, a swimming suit. Those are It's They justify is we need tourists to feel comfortable and we need tourists to feel at home. And we need tourists to feel like in Egypt they can drink alcohol and they can swim in bikinis and whatever and not to feel alienated by women who are swimming covered up. That's There are many, many other examples. I mean, in, in, uh, in, again, in, in so many countries, including countries like Egypt, uh, the, there's the military hands out construction contracts, not through open and free bidding, but with something called an Umr al-Mubashir, where the, the people in power command that a contract be given to an ex-party. And of course, this is done without any competition, without any bidding, because of corruption, because everyone gets a cut. You know, uh, American aid, whether to Egypt or Pakistan or to Jordan or to so many countries, is everyone knows half of American aid is eaten up by corruption. 
it goes into the pockets of of officers and you know the 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 influential people and it trickle eventually reaches the people it trickle and when someone tries to say anything about the morality of american aid or the reform needed to make sure that american aid is not simply a vehicle for corruption they are treated like criminals that's again do you see how reason comes together with the Quran? Because if you put, if you check out your reason, you, the Quran will be ineffective. And if you just go by reason alone, your reason alone will lead you to empiricism and functionalism and all type of accommodationism. It is that unity between the two that brings true morality. So, this is 18, as we said, right? So, whoever fabricates a lie upon the Lord, we've talked about this, what fabricating of lies. And again, please, I emphasize, I mean, the number of kids that I see on social media committing this very sin terrifies me, really terrifies me. If only they understood what they're doing. Um, okay, and... So, 20, then we get to verse, sorry, So, Allah's summation about those, these, these types of ailments, both those who lie about the Lord, attribute opinions, statements to the Lord, and those who do not understand that this past is the past of morality and an ethical order, and so on, is that the part that is easily understood is that their punishment will be multiplied in the hereafter. We, we can all understand that. Is that when it comes to the hereafter, Allah will do horrible things to them. Okay. The part that detained Muslim theologians and made Muslim theologians talk uh, quite a bit or, or have some serious discussions is they will not it's like saying they will not be, prevail or become dominant upon earth and why did this raise a, a lively debate well some said Look, empirically, the corrupt are the majority. 
and they do control earth. And it is people who are not corrupt that are always in the minority and always fighting. So how could it be that Allah would say that they will not dominate? So it must be that Allah is saying that despite the fact that they have so much power on earth, when it comes to the hereafter, Allah will be able to punish them. The second school said, no, the very nature of things is that corruption, although it dominates as an empirical reality, eventually that corruption becomes a bill that is due, that must be paid. In other words, corruption eats itself and destroys civilizations. And right remains right and wrong remains wrong. So in other words, although they, they live a crooked way of life, they never succeed in changing the nature of morality. And the, the philosophical debate goes much beyond that, but I'm just, you know, okay. But in all cases, in all cases, these are precisely the type of people who khasiru and fusahu, their first victim, is themselves. They've lost themselves. And in the hereafter, they are even more lost. However, regardless of the numbers and the empirical reality, those who pass, those who walk the ethical path of the Lord are Are, one is their fate in the hereafter, but that image that it is as if there are those who are um, deaf and blind, and the deaf and blind, and then there are those who are seeing and hearing. And the deaf and blind might be of great numbers on the earth. But truth remains with those who see and hear. It's like, it's like those who see and hear, the holders to morality and ethics and truth, walk upon this earth hearing and seeing. They are the constructive elements in existence. While all those who think that the crooked path is justified are floundering upon the earth. It's like saying, 
they're the they're the unreal thing. They're not the truth. They're not the 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 thing that the earth, as Allah says elsewhere, that they're not the people that the heavens cry about when they when they die. It's it's like they're dead weight upon this earth. Okay. So with this introduction, so notice right now to Surah Hud from from its beginning till now to verse twenty-four. I like to say it has constructed the psychological elements of Iman. And it's like saying, here are the psychological building blocks that you have to pay careful attention to. And these are the things that will help you do anchor yourself on the right path as opposed to the type of things that often make people go astray. Then at that point, Surat Hud shifts to telling us a number of parables about previous prophets. And it and in this context, so it will talk about the Prophet Nuh then Hud then Salih the Prophet Ibrahim and Lut, especially Lut, Ibrahim plays a, a very limited role, and then Shu'aib, and then Musa. So Nuh, Hud, Salih, Lut, Shu'aib, Musa. These are six. And if you're not paying careful attention to the narrative that Allah shares with you, the easy mistake is to say, yes, yes, I, yeah, I've encountered these prophets before. But remember, every time Allah tells you the narrative of a prophet, it is for a different angle and for a different reason. And the progression in telling you the narratives of these prophets is most amazing and most remarkable because of where it is going to take you. So we start with Prophet Nuh. And Prophet Nuh has initially a familiar stance. We know that Prophet Nuh lasted with his people for a very long time, as we said before, centuries, right? And that Prophet Nuh is warning them that they don't believe in God, that he fears their fate, fears what their fate will be. Here, 
in Surah Hud, we are told something about the people that the interlocutors was Prophet Nuh that should grab of our grab our attention. They say, Okay, we only see you as a fellow human being. This is 27. That we've encountered that before. So, in 27, what they specifically told him is that we not only you are not a distinguished member of our society, but we have a problem with those who follow you. The people who follow you are the lowest classes in our society. And as we said that lasts a very long time and those who manage to believe in him are a very small group but the arrogance of his people is that they are measuring truth or the lack of truth by class if the commoners believe you then you can't be Truthful. This is why when the Prophet commented on Surah Hud, the Prophet said, that most of those who will end up in heaven are the weakest and the most powerless elements in society. They're the ones that are, will be closer to salvation than anyone. And that is also why many commentators writing about Noah dynamic here say that it is the sunnah of human beings that the sunnah of human beings is that they oppose the truthful. The more truthful, the more the opposition. So, but then we get another element in that the Prophet والسلام,
So, so look at the, the, the rationality in the argument. It says, well, okay, so you, you're saying, you're measuring things according to class. But have you considered the fact that regardless of class, there is a truth and that I might be able to see the truth and you are missing it. It's like saying, what does class have to do with anything? Pay attention to the arguments. But then he tells them something that is rather very interesting. It's like saying, Have you considered that I might be actually seeing the truth that you are missing, but you, there's another element here, is that I am not trying to force you to believe. Why? Because as we've learned before, they are constantly hurting Noah and his followers. So what troubles you? about our arguments that you don't seem to be willing to comprehend or even tolerate. And he says, well, I'm not asking you for money, but moreover, but there is a matter of principle. وَمَا أَنَا بِطَارِدِ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِنَّهُمْ مُلَاقُوا رَبِّهِمْ I don't ask you for anything. I don't try to force you to do anything. But you want me to get rid of those who see the truth because of their lowly class. And that's an impossibility. That is like, that's beyond my moral powers to do. And he relegates the issues of principles to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he says, and if I would accommodate you in getting rid of those who you don't like because of in this case, class, but we can add anything, race, class, you know, whatever. Who is going to help me when it comes to God? It's like, who's going to save me from God's accountability and responsibility? And notice in 31, وَلَا أَقُولُ لِلَّذِينَ تَزْدَرِي أَعْيُنُكُمْ لَنْ يُؤْتِيهُمُ اللَّهُ خَيْرًا اللَّهُ أَعْلَمْ بِمَا فِي أَنْفُسِهِمْ إِنِّي إِذَا لَمِنَ الظَّالِمِينَ And not only that, but you don't respect them. You don't think they're that important because of their social status. You know what? Well, I can't even say that you're better than them. I can't say because I don't know what is inside their souls and what's inside their souls, what's inside their, their, their heart, 
is that what determines their moral quality, not your social status. So they respond to him by saying, Ya Nuh, قَدْ جَدَلْتَنَا فَأَكْثَرْتَ جِدَالَنَا فَأْتِنَا بِمَا تَعِدُنَا إِنْ كُنْتَ مِنَ الصَّادِقِينَ قال إنما يأتيكم به الله إن شاء وما أنتم بمعجزين ولا ينفعكم نصحي إن أردت أن أنصح لكم إن كان الله إن كان الله يريد أن أن يهويكم وهو ربكم وإليه ترجعون. so they they get they Noah you've argued with us and and you've argued with us ad nauseum. You've argued with us so much and we're sick of it. So, you know what? Go ahead. Bring us the punishment that you've been talking about for now centuries. And Noah's response is, you know, I give you advice, but you don't want to listen. And it is up to Allah. Now, here, the first stage of the narrative the, the, of, of the prophets that we are told about is the people who are anchored in a way of life that involves status and privilege. And to them, status and privilege has a great deal with what's right and what's wrong. And they are demanding something very similar to what the Meccans are demanding of the Prophet Muhammad we we don't want to mingle with the low class. Change it. In Surah Yunus, the Prophet Muhammad says to them, it's not up to me. Here in Surah Yud, Muh tells them, again, it's not up to me, and if I would change it, if I would kick out the people you don't like, who will avail me with God? If you are receiving this lesson, what are you learning? You're learning if you are if you have a mission. We've learned all these psychological building blocks. You must be anchored in principles, not pragmatism. If you're going to play the pragmatic games of politics, which is very sensible for a lot of empires or a lot of you know people trying to enter the game of politics, oh well, you know these people look bad. Let's put them in the in the in the background. Oh, you know this speaker. But I even take this a step further. And I say that this type of moral order extends not just to race and class, but to gender.
if I know that my the most knowledgeable person is a woman, but I say, let's not put her forward because it might hurt my popularity. I've sold out. If I say, well, you know, I would be more popular as a mullah imam type if I do X, Y, and Z with my wife or with the women who belong in my movement, I've sold out. The Quran teaches me principles. I can defend the principle before Allah. I can, I can defend the principle perhaps I'm wrong about. Maybe Allah says, I know you were wrong, Khalid. I wanted all the women muhajjabas. And I'll say, Allah, well, here's my evidence. Here's what I base myself on. I used my, the best judgment. Allah, you know what was in my heart. It's not that I wanted to see all the hair that women have. It's not that I had a hair fetish, so I want to every, see every woman's hair. But I was basing myself on the evidence as I understood it. And I'm hoping that Allah, would, who knows my heart, would say, oh, Khalid, okay, well, you know, you don't get two brownie points, you get one brownie point. That I can defend. But what I can't defend is Allah, this was my conviction, but I buried this woman because I wanted to be more popular. It's the Quran that teaches me this. Not Western ethics, not human rights, not whatever other people imagine. The Quran. So, this is it's a useful note here about we're now at, at um, 35. that they always comment about this part of the narrative about Prophet Muhammad by, by saying something to the effect of um, that anyone that claims to be a scholar Anyone that claims to be a, a person with a cause, your yardstick must be your belief as to what Allah believe, what Allah knows about you. So in other words, Uh, and actually, there is a, there is a nice quote here, maybe that will bring the idea closer. So, um, uh, yeah, meta alamak adam ikbal in nas alike, autoazumum bizami ilike, 
فارجع إلى علم الله فيك فإذا كان لا يقنعك علمه فمصيبتك بعدم قناعتك بعلمه أشد من مصيبتك بوجود الأذى منهم. So what, what this is saying, which is very common as a, as a comment about this, is that if you find that you're not popular and that people are not flocking to accept what you're teaching or what you're saying, or that people are in fact criticizing your opinions, what matters, go and think about what Allah believes or what Allah, uh, how Allah views you. Yes, you're not popular. Yes, people are criticizing you, but how does Allah view you? If you find yourself not satisfied with how Allah views you, but far more interested with how people view you, then know that the real problem that you are confronting is the weakness of your faith. Because what Allah view, the way Allah views you should matter much more to you. This quote I found, of course, in, in, in um, uh, Ibn Ajiba, but it, it is so often quoted. I mean, this is something that you, you will literally learn You know, I've heard it the first time when, when on the commentary on Riyadh al-Salihin by Sheikh Hadir Eid, who was like, when I was maybe 14 years old. And then since then, you, you hear it's drilled into you. That, you know, it, whenever you think about whether you're popular or not, whether people are criticizing you or not, think about how you are viewed by Allah. But this also holds, by the way, if you are a wife who finds herself constantly criticized by her husband, if you're a husband finds himself constantly criticized by your wife, if you are anything who finds themselves, what is your relationship with Allah? If you find that you're far more bothered about the human being rather than Allah, then you, have, you should know you have a spiritual problem. And that should preoccupy you far more than anything. One of the things that I've also read well, and actually it was, it was also taught to us that says teach your knowledge when you teach teach your knowledge so that Allah will believe you but do not teach your knowledge so that human beings will believe you teach your knowledge so that human beings can understand you 
But whether they believe you, no. Important that Allah believes you. This, again, I can't tell you how often this was drilled in us. A lot of the, unfortunately, a lot of the Muslims that immigrate to the United States, you don't get the, the, the cream of the crop. You don't get the, the, you know, a lot of the cream of the crop end up in prisons back home and get destroyed because that's, that's, that's unfortunately the nature of tyranny. The people who often make it to the United States are, you know, um, there is a world of difference between someone raised, you know, from the time they're 12 years old, your audience is God and care about whether God is impressed, not whether human beings are impressed. And someone who basically is, uh, you know, is in, engaged in a showmanship, you know, gathering likes and views and stuff like that, which is not what, it's not how ethical, an ethical path is pursued. And I'm not even talking about just a religious path, but an ethical path is pursued. Ethics has nothing to do with the number of views and number of likes. Okay. So then we get to the point where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells Nuh there is no hope and notice in Surah Yunus we are told that Nuh prays that Allah punishes his people and that the prayer is answered but it is not Nuh's business when the implementation or when the answer comes forward. But here what is emphasized is something very interesting which tells you like the, the Quran shows you the same story from different angles which I think is one of the most remarkable things of the Quran it's like it's telling you the truth can be seen from different angles and the angle can relate to you only when you've seen the truth from all the angles can you truly understand it here it's not Noah who's praying for the punishment, but rather Allah tells Noah, okay, that's it. No more people are going to follow you. And Allah says to Noah, go ahead, build the boat, right? And don't appeal to me as to, so that I would save any of them. So you pause, you say, wait, wait. So in Surah Yunus, it is Noah who's praying for the punishment. Here, it is Allah who's saying, don't, don't ask me to save any of them. 
if you're paying attention, how do you understand that narrative? Internalize it. How many times you as a human being go through hardship and you raise your hand to Allah in bitterness and hurt and then at another time your mood and your tone changes. It is all a part of the truth. It is all a part of understanding the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad It is getting the, taking the Quran a verse and taking it out of its context and quoting it as if that's the truth. That's the problem. But what you understand is this confrontation is prolonged, it's about principles, it's about an arrogant people, it's, and then comes at that point and I, and, and I underscore, in the Bible, it tells you that the flood covered the entire earth. Unfortunately, some Muslims followed that. They took it from the Bible. The, in the Quran, the flood did not cover the entire earth. The flood was in, in a specific region of the earth and a part of basically the Near East, whether it was Jabal Ararat, as some say, or um, um, uh, 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 I'm blanking out that's the name of the other mountain. It will come to me in a second. So he's building the ship, right? And the people are passing by and they're mocking him. What is the ship that you're building? And he is told, Nuh is told, we call it Zawjani thing, carry Zawjani tools, right? And among the most interesting thing is that in Sufi-esque literature, they don't believe that the that when the Prophet Nuh is told carry two in twos that he carried, you know, if a, a male lion and a female lion or a male sheep and a female sheep, right? And I don't know. I don't know what you call it. Anyway, but rather they understand that command metaphorically, and that Nuh is told him and his followers the dualities that they carry are the dualities of Sharia, 
أن حقيقة شريعة الله أن حقيقة the truth or the 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 ideals the علم الحكمة وعلم القدرة that which two types of knowledge of um, philosophical knowledge um, علم الحس الحس وعلم المعنى knowledge of um, الحس is the empirical and معنى is knowledge of meaning uh, علم الملك وعلم الملكوت knowledge of the temporal and the malakut knowledge of the supernal علم الأشباح وعلم الأرواح that in other words what the instruction in the Sufi-esque tradition especially is that Nuh as he knows that the area that's going to be flooded is going to be enormous after all he's lived all these centuries preaching in this region that is quite large that it is critical that he educates his people on critical dualities in knowledge like the spirit and the physical the law and ideals um, knowledge of meaning and as opposed to empirical or um, uh, uh, experimental knowledge um, and so on and so forth. That view in modern Islam has been largely forgotten. I I've, haven't been anywhere where I found modern Muslims explain the verse this way. Although it's clear that um, you know, because Sufism used to be far more widespread all over the Muslim world, that was that was far, far more commonly taught than it is today. Okay, so then the flood takes place, right? And Nuh says, وَقَالَ أَرْكَبُوا بِسْمِ اللَّهِ مَجْرَاهَا وَمُرْسَاهَا that and this by the way in, has great symbolic significance in in Sufi literature that when you say that in the name of Allah it, it, it it's uh, its course on the sea and where it lands but anyway I don't want to uh, pause at this and there is a, 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 here in Surah Hud, we are then introduced to a very painful human element. And that is Nuh's discourse with his son. And Nuh appeals to his son, get on the boat, and his son says, no, I don't believe in what you're saying, I don't follow you, and his son ultimately drowns. And after his son drowns, we are told that 
Allah says, وَقِيلَ يَا أَرْضُ بْلَعِي مَا أَكِي وَيَا سَمَاءُ قْلِعِي وَغِيضَ الْمَاءُ وَقُدِيَ الْأَمْرُ وَاسْتَوَتْ عَلَى الْجُودِي وَقِيلَ بُعْدًا لِلْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ So, this is by the way one of the remarkable mentions in the Quran is that water has to stop from above and the earth had to swallow the water. So if, if the earth couldn't swallow the water, the flood would have remained. Of course, it took human beings a long time to understand things like what were the processes that would make the earth swallow water and so on. But in the Quran, it says, which most commentators say that the ship rested on a mountaintop called Judi, uh, which still exists, by the way. But then, at this point, Nuh we are told, we, we don't know if Nuh spoke to God directly, but that's unlikely. But there is some type of conversation about Nuh and his son. And what is this conversation? Noah is heartbroken about his son. And he says, This is my son. What is it that Noah wants at this point? He is praying after the death of his son that his son be saved. And the response that Nuh gets is rather harsh. He's told, don't talk to me about that. He did not live a moral life. So don't ask me for what would make you a jahil an immoral human being. And Nuh responds, Inni a'udhu bika an as'alaka ma laysa li bihi ilm. God, you know, I'm not gonna, forgive me. I'm not, I, I don't mean to ask for an immoral favor. Forgive me. So you pause here. And say. So. First. In, in, we're told. We encounter the narrative of Noah before, but here in Surah Hud, we encounter a different element in the narrative. And the different element is they want certain compromises about Noah's followers. They don't like people of low social status. Noah says, it's not up to me. I can't do it. Sorry. The Noah is told when it comes to God's law, your discretion ends. So in other words, build the ship and don't talk to me 
about khalas, you know, don't talk to me about saving those who insisted on and, and no one else will, will follow you. And we are even told that rejection of truth can even be the closest to you, your own son. And even after the drowning, don't ask for favors. The narrative of the Prophet Noah here is about a man who is being told, anchor yourself in these moral, ethical principles, no nepotism, no special favors, no shortcuts, even if it is painful. So if you are a follower of the Prophet Muhammad and you read the story and the same time the Prophet says if Fatima would steal I would punish her myself or I would cut off her hand in some versions or in another story he turns to his family and says, none of you should count on my intercession in the hereafter. Your salvation can, must come only from your deeds. What is the principle you're learning? This is really important because you'll see how it all builds on one another. This is none of this is happenstance. We just forgot how to read the Qur'an. So, and Allah tells Noah, well, you know, after you, there will be many nations that will come, descendants of you in this region. And some of them will be good and some of them will be bad. No chosen people, no special status, the descendants of the people who followed Noah, some of them will be bad. This is 48 and 49, of course. Now, notice 49. When Allah tells the Prophet Muhammad, we're telling you things that you and your people didn't know before. Why? Because these details, these angles of the story of Noah are not in the Bible. And they were not part of pre-Islamic lore, Arab lore. The first time they, that ethical angle only occurs in the Quran. Okay. So after Nuh, immediately the Quran moves to Hud, the Prophet Hud. And again, Hud emphasizes, I don't want anything from you. 
I don't want any financial gain. Ya qawmi, la as'alukum alayhi ajran. Inna ajri illa ala alladhi fatarani. Afala ta'qilun. If you look at my objective interests, it's not in what I do. But here, Hood says something very interesting. He says, Ya qawmi, staghfiru rabbakum, thumma tubu ilayh, yursilu samaa alaykum midrara, wa yazidkum quwwatan ila quwwatikum, wa la tatawallaw mujrimeen. Hood, and this will be the only among the, the, the six prophets, this will be the only time that you will get this, this, this aspect of the story. Is that he will tell his people, if you follow me and you be truly pious, piety, I would like to use morality, ethics. Ethics, morality, is not going to weaken you. But in fact, it's going to make you stronger, more powerful. And you pause and say, Whoa, we have something very similar where the Prophet Muhammad tells Mecca, you keep worrying about your material interests that becoming Muslims is going to bankrupt you and ethics is going to prevent and ruin your business. Trust in Allah because Allah has something better in store for you. So this is a parallel between the prophethood and the prophet Muhammad in that, in this particular circumstance, in these two circumstances, following their prophet would have actually consolidated their, their status as a superpower. If they would have listened. However, their response to Hood is this is nonsense. We won't believe you. And Hood's response to them will remind us of a response of another prophet in another surah. What does he tell them? He says, Okay, fine. You keep, you reject me. You say I am a liar. You say that I am in fact insane. Go ahead. Do what you will against me. He, he challenges them to harm him. 
if they want. Who else did that? Do you guys remember? Nuh. But that was in Surah Yunus. Here, who does that is Hud. And he does that, why? He says, because I rely on Allah. And I know that whatever happens, it is according to Allah's will. And he tells him another important thing. That if you turn away, Allah will do what Allah does all the time. When he, Allah destroys an immoral people, he replaces them with another people who are then Allah will replace you with another people who will then go through the same test. So, and we know that they don't listen to him and they're destroyed. So you pause here for a second and say, wait. So Hud is the only one in this narrative, in Surah Hud, who says following me would have actually been consistent with your political ambitions. But it would have made your political ambitions moral, but not weakened you. Moreover, that he defies them, he doesn't try to negotiate with harm, he confronts harm. Moreover, he tells them that if you are gone, you will be replaced with another. So what we get from the Hood narrative, the, the, the lessons extracted are things that apply to the Meccan context in very clear terms. It's like, it's exactly what the Prophet tells the Meccans. That, but there is that element that is very important to the persecuted Muslims at the time. You must confront the persecution and endure. But this time, it's conveyed not through Prophet Noah, it's conveyed through Prophet Hud. And it is no coincidence that this surah is called Surah Hud, as we will see. But Ad, which is the people of Hud, will be destroyed and Hud and his followers will be, will be saved although we don't know much about after they're saved. But it doesn't leave the story of Hud and Ad without one final thing that becomes very important in the, in the narrative of Surah Hud. وَتِلْكَ عَادٌ This is 59. جَحَدُوا بِآيَاتِ رَبِّهِمْ وَعَصُوا رَسُولَهُ وَاتَّبَعُوا أَمْرَ كُلِّ جَبَّارٍ عَنِيدٍ عاد 
disobeyed the prophet, but Ad followed the path, followed the commands, followed the lifestyle, followed the orders of Kul Jabbar Anid. They followed the path or the commands of tyrants. This, as we will see, will become critically important because now we, we see there is a problem with, with the people of Hud. The problem is they blindly follow immoral commands and especially the immoral commands of tyrants of people who are intoxicated with power. Now bear this in mind because we'll see how it becomes really important. Then it moves on, Surah Hud moves on to Salih and Thamud. We've encountered Salih and Thamud before, but this time Again, the angle of the narrative is critical. Saleh tells his people, Allah has allowed you to inhabit the plot of earth that you inhabit and says, Istamarakum is the same word for colonialism. It's like literally, Allah has allowed you to habitate it, to discipline it for your needs, to subjugate it, subjugate the land. And yet, although you have been able to enjoy Allah's bounties, you owe no gratitude to God and as we will see, you live an immoral life. Their response to Salih is something that we don't get into any other surah about this same narrative. Their response is, Salih, what's wrong with you? We used to have high hopes for you and high aspirations. We used to think that you are going to grow up to be one of our leaders. And you turned out to be a loser. How many times you have someone that is on the straight path and the way that they are taken off the straight path is by promises of, oh, we expected better from you. You know, we thought you are, I remember a long time ago, there was this kid, you know, one, another yet of these Islamic camps, the Qurayshi camp. And, you know, I was there, and again, I got kicked out. 
for having a brain, basically. Um, and there was one kid there who, his claim to fame in the Qureshi camp was that he was accepted at Harvard. He was going to go to Harvard. So, you know, he was considered very smart and everyone thought, okay, well, he can reason with Khaled, you know, because apparently the, the two of us are the only two people that have a brain. So he came to talk to me and I explained to him what happened and he was very sympathetic. And then when he went back to talk to the people who wanted to kick me out of the camp, It was remarkable because they, you know, oh, you know, we thought, you know, we are counting on you to be one of the leaders of our Muslim ummah. We are counting on you to take over for us in this camp. And of course, you know, and then of course that completely altered him, changed him. But that same tactic is very old you know, in far more serious situations. So, we really had high hopes for you. But you've disappointed us. And of course, Saleh's response is, What can I do when I see the truth is an other than what you follow? And who would protect me from Allah if in fact I followed your temptations? And then we have the story of Saleh's camel, and we've talked about this before, where he tells them this, is, this camel, you have to honor the rights of this camel, this camel gets to drink, don't molest the camel, don't interfere with the camel, and we, as we said before, that Qawm Salih were known for their stinginess. And they slaughtered the camel, and then Salih told them that in three days you will be destroyed. The story of Saleh coming after the story of Hud, well, Hud and Saleh reportedly were two Arab prophets. But put that aside because I don't think that's the material issue. What does the angle contributed in Storat Hud in the telling of the story of the Prophet Saleh, what different end goal do we get than all the other times the story of Saleh, all the times that the story of Saleh is told? This rather subtle 
point of corruption through which is the only time that we get in the telling of the story of Saleh is that this this possibility of corruption through soft politics in that they told him we had better hopes for you than this he comes back and says well you know i i i can't compromise when i who would help me who would save me from my lord they appear reasonable in the response when they say we have better hopes and are you know how could you be how could you ask us to leave what in, in 62 to leave what our fathers followed they they don't have harsh let's see how they translated 62 they don't have um, vulgar language with them but they say while we remain in grave doubt about that which you call us that seems pretty gentle so the opposition here the resistance to truth here is temptation of power and seeming very mild-mannered. Well, we, we have grave doubts about what you're saying. This doesn't in any way betray what they're going, the violence by what, the violence they're going to commit against the camel. If someone says to you, you know, we're dis I'm disappointed in you, and you know, I have really serious doubts about what you're saying, you would be tempted that, well, they're going to respect your rights. So when you introduce the camel and say, here's the camel, you know, here's a fair division about the camel, The violence is surprising, which means that initial soft discourse was deceptive, which is precisely how some Muslims, remember, some Muslims were even deceived enough that they failed to do the hijrah and follow the Prophet to Medina. And then when the Battle of Uhud happened, they found themselves drafted fighting with the Kuffar against Muslims. Here, the story of Saleh gives you a different angle as to the way that, again, what is right, what is ethical can be defeated.
Then we get to Ibrahim and Lut. Okay. So then after Qamu Salih, we are taken to um, a we are taken to the, the company of the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, who receives Allah's messenger, messengers so Ibrahim, this is um, 69. So Ibrahim السلام, receives messengers. He does what is customary for guests, and that's to honor guests, to treat them, to treat them well, and serves the best food he has. And when he notices that they are not eating in Near Eastern culture and many areas of the Near East, if a guest eats your food, that means you're safe from harm. That if you eat someone's food, you, you, you are morally banned from having ill intentions against them. On the other hand, if you, if you refuse to eat someone's food, then that could be an indication of hostility. And so when Ibrahim notices that they're not eating, eating, he worries that they have come to him with hostile intent. And, and at this point, they say, we have been sent, we're actually not sent here with any specific action other than to give you good news, but we are messengers to the people of Lut. You notice in 71, It's an, inter I mean, an interesting note that this, um, in verse 71, it says, um, and his wife was standing there and she laughed. Then we gave her glad, glad tidings of Isaac and after Isaac of Jacob. The, the only the, the the reason I say it's interesting is that she laughs before she's given the good news that despite her age she will have Isaac that she will be able to bear children. Um, there are some commentators that say that the reason she laughed is that she was relieved to know that these guests are not there was ill-intentioned and that they didn't come with hostile intentions towards them. Um, 
Others said that there is another meaning for dhahikat in um, old Arabic, and that's dhahikat could mean to menstruate. So some commentators said that it, it doesn't mean that she laughed, but that she's standing there and then she was she menstruated, and then she was told, you know what, you're going to bear children, and. Of course, her response is, how could this be when I am an old woman and my husband is an old man? Um, and anyway, okay, so th then in 72 and 73, I don't have much to add. Um, they're saying, uh, do you marvel at the command of God, the mercy of God, and his blessings be upon you, O people of the house? Truly, God is praised and glorious. So when the awe had left Ibrahim and glad tidings had come unto him, he pleaded with us, yeah. So, you know, basically she saw that you shouldn't marvel at God's miracles. And that the concept of Al-Bayt, which is important for the, the progeny of Ibrahim and the progeny of Prophet Muhammad it, it just, um, I'm gonna flag it and leave it there for now. Anyway, فلما ذهب عن إبراهيم الروع وجاءته البشرى يجادلنا في قوم لوط إن إبراهيم لحليم أواه منيب يا إبراهيم أعرض عن هذا إنه قد جاء أمر ربك وإنهم آتيهم العذاب غير مردود وإنهم آتيهم عذاب غير مردود So once Ibrahim calms down, calms down about the guests and calms down about the news that he is going to be father, although his wife is advanced in age and he's an advanced he's advanced in age. He tries to intervene, pleading that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't destroy Kawrut. It's about people of Lut. And Ibrahim is the, the Quranic commentary that Ibrahim is, was a kind and compassionate man, which, but at the same time, it's once, it's, he's told there is no point to attempting the intervention intervention or intercession on, on behalf of the people of Lut. Now what's interesting is that you are given a layered story because there are a number of reports about Lut, I mean many but um, among them is that the Prophet Lut 
himself mentions or says about them that they were absolutely the most despicable um, group of people on the face of earth that in terms of their moral conduct they were absolutely deplorable and there are many reports about what people of Lut did including um, making a living out of highway robbery so they were constantly raiding um, everyone around them and including the, the bizarre practice of uh, degrading outsiders and degrading enemies by sexually assaulting their men. And as I said before, that you, we're not talking about, this is not the issue of uh, 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 a percentage of the population having homosexual inclinations. This is a deliberate, methodical, ideological practice of sodomizing foreigners which they had become quite famous for. Anyway, so, and we encounter again the scene that now the messengers, after telling the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, that his arguments on behalf of the people of Lut to give them another chance, to give them more time is of no avail. They, they go to loot himself. And not surprisingly, Lut, who is, we know from elsewhere in the Quran, was banned from receiving visitors because his people had put him on notice that if he received any visitors, then their fair game, in other words, they would be raped. Uh, he realized that this is a problem. And in fact, his wife sneaks off and tells the, his people that he has visitors. And as expected, they rush to him and demand that his visitors be turned over uh, for what they usually do with visitors. There is a, in the tradition, there is a discussion as to whether they, they did this to all visitors or did this to visitors of people that they intentionally wanted to humiliate. But anyway, and you notice he says, so 
the reason I posit this is because a lot of modern Muslims seem to be confused about it, is because they, they read this language and they, again, they have no, no sense for the nuance of the language itself, is that normally, or quite often is translated as Lut tells them, or oh, here are my daughters, aren't you, isn't, aren't any of you, uh, uh, you know, aren't any of you rational people, or reasonable people, or decent people? And of course, if if he's saying here are my daughters, rape them, then Rashid wouldn't make any sense because instead of raping my guests, rape my daughters, that would be the rational thing or the decent thing. And of course, Islamophobes ignoring what's written about Lut and the same incident in the Bible love to harp on things that Muslims have no clue about. So, you know, I've gotten a lot of emails about this. And it's actually far less complicated than that. Um, one, when he says, this is Many commentators said that what he's saying is not here are my daughters who are from my blood. He's saying here are, he's basically saying instead of doing this, go marry women. And it was idiomatically, it was common to refer to the women of women of your tribe collectively as your daughters. So a group of commentators said that he's basically saying, you know, stop raping men and go marry women. Other commentators said, no, he's saying, he's making a rhetorical point that if you wanted the moral thing, then here are my daughters, you could propose to them in marriage. But not a single commentator in all the tafsir that I looked at, said that Lut, a prophet of God, was offering his daughters to be raped. That's absurd. And that would not be followed, Rashid. Offering your daughters to be raped is never an act of rushd, which rushd means an act of decency, an act of good moral conduct. And when they say, Here again, the word haq in Islamic law and in post-Quranic Arabic means right. That, that was co-opted by Sharia discourses. The haq became a word for right. So, let me see what the study of Quran says. 79. Uh, they said, certainly, you know, we have no right to your daughters. Yeah. So, again, even the study of Quran makes the, the common error of translating it as, we don't have any rights in your daughter. Well, obviously, you're not married to them, uh, but 
the word haq was co-opted by Islamic law to mean a right. But before the birth of Islamic law, when the Quran was revealed, the word haq could also mean interest. Meaning, we have no interest in your daughters. And you know what, I want, what we want. Basically, want, we want your guests. And that plea of powerlessness that statement became a very powerful statement in the Islamic imaginary. Every, I can't tell you how many times women who were exploited or men who were oppressed would repeat that very same statement. If only I had the power to fend you off, or if only I could escape to a corner away from you, is many commentators noted that when Lut utters this by uttering the statement of hopelessness and, and, and stark disempowerment. The response of the angels visiting him, at that point, they inform him, those people will be destroyed. And they, do, they drew the correlation that with the existence of this level of oppression, where decent human beings have no recourse but to say, if only I had some strength, or if only I had some escape, this is precisely the demonstrative proof as to why the prayers of Ibrahim or the pleadings of Ibrahim were not answered. Because those people created this level of oppression. And at this point, the messengers comfort Ruth and say, don't worry, save your family except his wife who uh, belonged to, um, she was a supporter of her, of her tribe, not a supporter of Lut. And they are, as a result, destroyed. Okay. Um, we're not going to finish Surah Hud tonight, but I want to get you to, to a good departure point. Um, okay. So, with the story of Ibrahim and Ruth, we are confronted by a man who is disempowered 
oppressed to the extreme, surrounded, um, surrounded by his oppressors without a means of escape until Allah intervenes directly and gives the Prophet and his family means of escape. Now keep this in mind, just make a note because it will become very significant at the end of the surah. At the sort of um, the 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 takeaway, if you will, from Surah Hud. Okay. Then, what comes after Ibrahim and Lut? And Ibrahim and Lut, what what we're left with is this is. A, a corrupt people with extreme disempowerment. Then we're taken to Shu'aib, the people of Madian. And Shu'aib was among the people of Madian, meaning he grew up in Madian. And immediately in 84, So again, we always start with the center, worship God. Then you pause, you say, wait, okay, so you know if you've if you've noticed with Nuh with Hud, with Saleh, then we come to Ibrahim, the, there is, if you will, a shift into the confrontations from a general conditions of, with Nuh there is a classism, with Hud, we are told about a, a um, um, I'm blanking out. Uh, with Hood, there is a, a, a sense of lack of um, principle, lack of ethics. With, with Saleh, we get a sense of the, the, how sleazy the people of Saleh is and the act of injustice of killing a camel. But then when we get to Lut, we're presented with corruption and we get to a tribe immediately. Allah and what follows the issue of, of Shu'aib and his people is that they cheat in commerce. The dishonest people who steal through deceptive and fraudulent practices. So he tells them, "Why come? Be fair with measures. Don't cheat. 
ولا تبخسوا الناس أشياءهم ولا تعصوا في الأرض المفسدين and don't deny people their rights ولا تبخسوا الناس أشياءهم don't deny people their rights ولا تعصوا في الأرض المفسدين and don't go around spreading corruption on earth what is the response of the people of Shraib They say, قَالُوا يَا شُعَيْدِ أَصَلَاتُكَ تَأْمُرُكَ أَنْ نَطْرُكَ مَا يَعْبُدُ آبَاؤُنَا أَوْ أَنْ نَفْعَلَ فِي أَمْوَالِنَا مَا نَشَاءُ إِنَّكَ أَنْ لَأَنْتَ الْحَلِيمُ الرَّشِيدِ Their reasoning with him in somewhat similar way that like they reasoned with Salih. But they're using more um, toxic logic, if you will. With them, they're saying, so your prayer, it's like saying your religious beliefs, your prayers, is this what your prayers teach you? Your prayers are teaching you to rebel against the customs of our fathers. And they're teaching you that we can't do with our money what we wish. But instead of telling him off or cursing him, they say, you are a man of forbearance and sound judgment. Posit this. What a challenge. You are a man of forbearance of sound judgment. And so a man of sound judgment would know that we have a right to structure our commercial transactions the way we see fit. Does this remind you of anything? Notice what Surah Qud has taken, done with you so far. It's taken you from one narrative, prophetic narrative, to levels of deceptiveness, levels of immorality, levels of playing around with ethics. So it's, if you are paying attention, you are saying one of these is going to say, you're going to say, whoa, yeah, this is very similar to what's going on with me. Shaib is, in fact, told you're a man of sound judgment and, you know, hey, it's a free market. Supply and demand. You know, we, we this is our property. We we buy and sell as we see fit. Why is why are you so upset that some people are getting the short end of the bargain and not getting a fair deal? His response is equally sophisticated. 
because his response his response is remarkable. I mean, it it would it it, it deserves a serious pause. But this is what Surat Hud is 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 building up to. So this is at eighty eight. So he says, my people. First, in kuntu ala bayinatin min Rabbi, warazakani minhu rizqan hasana. What if people, I stand on clear proof from my Lord. Warazakani minhu rizqan hasana. So the translation here is, and provided me with goodly provision from himself. What's the goodly provision? It's not money, it's not goods, it's knowledge, ethical knowledge. He's saying, what do you want me to do? God has taught me that what you're doing is not fair, it's unethical. If I see what you're doing is wrong, what can I do? In fact, not only that, I cannot accept what you're doing, but I cannot simply, I can't avoid disagreeing with you. I, it's like saying, I have no choice in the matter. In uridu illa islaha mastatat. In fact, what I want, and I desire not but to set matters aright so far as I am able. I'm compelled to try to reform. And, and ultimately, it's, it, it, I rely on Allah. And Hud So what does he tell them? He said, People, don't let the fact that you might not like me or that you might want to prove me wrong or that you don't like the fact that someone is criticizing you lead you to very horrible places, horrible based places Horrible places like what? Well, horrible places like what happened to people of Noah, people of Hud, people of Saleh. And what happened to the people of Hud was not that long ago. Then you pause and you say, whoa, hold on. So, Unfair money dealings 
exploitative financial practices. Denying people their rights can make these people equal in moral weight to the people of Nuh and Hud and Saleh and Lut. That's a sophisticated perspective. And this view is only underscored so you understand that and, and, and of course as I usually do I wrap it up at, at the end so first they tell Shu'aib you are a man of good judgment sound judgment you're a very wise person when he gives them that critique, what is their response? A study in social psychology. What is the response? قَالُوا يَا شُعَيْبُ مَا نَفْقَهُ كَثِيرًا مِمَّا تَقُولُ وَإِنَّا لَنَرَاكَ فِينَا ضَعِيفًا وَلَوْ لَا رَهْتُكَ لَرَجَمْنَاكَ وَمَا أَنْتَ عَلَيْنَا بِعَزِيزٍ So at that point, the gloves come off. And they say to him, okay, Shai, the fun is over. Listen, we don't understand much of what you're saying. It's, you know, when people say, we don't want to listen, you know, what, what the heck are you talking about? You know, we can't make a killing in the stock market. We can't issue junk bonds, we can't do this, we can't do that. What is that? You know, it, it, we don't understand what you're saying. So we went from, oh, you're a very wise man, to we don't even understand what you're talking about. Not only that, but so not only that, but you are weak among us. Oh, interesting. So now we've gone to the loot dynamic. First, they're like, how, how dare, dare you compare us to all these horrible people? But now you're weak among us. And you know what? If it hadn't been for your family, we'd have stoned you to death. قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ أَرَهْتِ أَعَزُّ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ وَاتَّخَذْتُمُوهُمْ وَرَأْكُمْ تُهِرِيَّةٍ إِنَّ رَبِّي بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ مُحِيطٍ What is his response? He says, oh, so you don't stone me because of my family instead of because of your fear of God? Well, if that's the case, then no deal. It reminds us of Hood, the man who said, go ahead, harm me. 
people اعملوا على مكانتكم اني عامل سوف تعلمون من ياتيه العذاب يخزيه من هو كاذب وارتقبوا اني معكم رقيب so do what you do ultimately the, the decisive factor between us is god you do what you do and i'll do what i do and then we are briefly told ولما جاء امرنا نجينا شعيب والذين معه برحمه منا واخذت الذين ظلموا الصيحه فاصبحوا في ديارهم جاثمين that ultimately Shaib was saved and his people and his, the people of Shaib were destroyed. Okay. Then we get to Musa. And Musa, we're familiar with the story, but here we're told that وَلَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا مُوسَى بِآيَاتِنَا وَسُلْطَانٍ مُبِينٍ We've sent Musa with our message and our authority إِلَى فِرْعَوْنَ وَمَلَئِهِ To Fir'aun and his people فَاتَّبَعُوا أَمْرَ فِرْعَوْنَ This is 97 وَمَا أَمْرُ فِرْعَوْنَ بِرَشِيدٍ What is the problem with the people of Fir'aun? The problem with the people of Fir'aun is what we encountered with Hud. Is that the people follow the Jabbar, the Anid. Follow the tyrant. 97. It doesn't matter that Fir'aun is wrong. People are following the powerful, not the righteous. And that is why that image, extremely eloquent but the gist of it is that okay so they follow the Pharaoh meaning they follow those with power and in the end the leader in the same way that you follow the leader towards the unethical and the immoral in this life, you will follow your leaders to hellfire. On the day of resurrection, he, Fir'aun, shall lead them to fire. And and, and shall be the day. Evil indeed is the gift that will be offered them. وَبِئْسَ الْوِرْدُ الْمَوْرُودِ It's um, It's like say Evil begot evil 
until the end. Then at ayah verse 100 is the transition for the conclusion. And I wanna, I wanna, so let's go back and look at so far before we get to the conclusion which we won't get to today. Hood, which you would pause and think of all these prophets, why Hood? We already identified that this is the one prophet that tells his people that following me could have actually like the people of Mecca, augmented your, your, your power as a people. But ultimately, what happened with Hud is that his people followed followed the tyrants and the unjust of the age. So, and Hud has parallels that are unmistakable with the epitome of all tyrants from or the the, the, the example of Nuh begins with a man struggling with a message and this man is ridiculed, insists on a cause without much success, and the picture gradually takes us step to, by step to those who stand confronting moral corruption and social corruption and then takes us to a critical point that at the heart of moral corruption and social corruption are those who relinquish their moral responsibility and follow immoral superiors. Who also is the only one in this version that says bring on the harm in order for me to be a man with a message I can't compromise with the fact that you might harm me now we will, inshallah, get to the conclusion on Tuesday, inshallah, where it, all of this is wrapped up. But ask yourself, you are at the time of the Prophet, 
you know that the message has gone public. You know that it is no longer the case that the Prophet is supporting keeping your Islam secret. Not only that, but it has become clear that the venues in Mecca have closed and the persecution is escalating. But the message remains steadfast. There will be no compromises for the mere fact of survival. You are about an ethical cause and the ethical cause has elements of class, elements of prejudice, elements of devious politics, temptations of leadership, temptations of where you are praised by your opponents and then your opponents take off their the, the corrupt commercial practices, injustice, and as you will see, what ultimately Surat Hu takes you to at the very end is the core concept of justice. It's like saying, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but, but I'll show you how, how that takes place. It's like saying, yes, this message is about God. But God without justice doesn't make sense. As justice without God is also incoherent. But if you can imagine that you can call for the cause of God but somehow tolerate injustice, no, it does not work, it will not work, this is not what you're about. It blows your mind. This is precisely why the Quran transformed the Ummah. This is precisely why people were willing to die for this Quran. It didn't come and tell them, you know what? What your Islam is about is how you should do good sujood and accurate Quran and how you can pluck your nose and pluck your ears and drink your water in three gulps. No one would have been willing to sacrifice for this faith. It was a revolution. It's just we forgot how to read the Quran. That's all it is. Inshallah, Tuesday, I will complete Surah Hud and wrap it all together. And Inshallah, I will deal with questions. Just pray that Allah gives me the health and endurance so that I can finish this project. If I finish this project, I will leave this world a happy man. Uh, it, it, 
it doesn't seem like anyone else is, is, is stepping up to the plate, so it must be what it must be. Okay, come do the honors. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, it is my honor to do the honors. <laughs> um, incredible surah. I mean, you, it, 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 there's just no words. I mean, you feel stupid saying this was an incredible surah because they're all incredible, right? They're just, you can't really convey. Um, but I think the, um, when, when things make so much sense and the idea that, you know, okay, now we're starting to really feel in our hearts what it means to sacrifice um, for this religion and that the idea of dying for this religion actually makes sense and is a point of honor and not because you're a jihadi that wants to like, you know, kill yourself with a suicide bomb or something like that, but because you're standing for principle and it doesn't matter because God knows what you're trying to do and God is demanding something very beautiful. Um, it, it just, I think it gives you a completely different sense of purpose and meaning in your life. And it helps you to be very proud to be Muslim. And, um, and honestly, it makes me question, like one of the students here said, you know, before these halakas, I honestly don't understand why I was Muslim. And now, when, as you learn this, you're like, this is a completely different Islam that actually makes me proud to be Muslim. I mean, that, those are my words. So this is the first part was from the student. But you know, it's just, uh, alhamdulillah, I, that's such a gift um, because I, I think most Muslims don't really think that deeply about this. And especially as a convert, you know, it, this is what we searched for. Like I know we have, you know, converts here, Elaine, you know, people who are with us on this journey. And you understand that feeling of, of meaning um, and purpose. Um, it's, it's the greatest gift you could ever receive. So, and this just validates all of that. So thank you and may Allah protect you and bless you and elevate you and allow you to finish this project um, so this message can continue. Please continue to pray that um, Sheikh has strength and patience and perseverance and the ability to withstand like all of the pain that is coming despite you know um, trying to fight to, to show up here and, and give us this beautiful knowledge. So thank you so much and inshallah we look forward to seeing you on Tuesday for the conclusion of um, this amazing surah. Assalamu alaikum. Wonderful to see you.